Hello there. Today I'm talking to Adi Fuchs, who is an expert in AI acceleration technology. Uh, we talk about a whole bunch of things in this interview, but it is a little bit of a special thing because it's not about a paper or anything, but it is about a series of blog posts that Adi has authored. I am very much a noob in the AI accelerator field, so I thought it'd be really cool to talk to someone who really know what they're talking about, who are in this industry and uh, can explain everything you know, from very technical to, to very noobish for me. So we go over a whole bunch of things like why do we even need accelerators? What are the reasons behind it? Uh, why are GPUs here and why are they good for AI? Up to very, very modern approaches to AI accelerations, TPUs and, and beyond that. So if you're interested in this, uh, watch the interview. It was very cool. I learned a lot and uh, I hope you do too. Without further ado, uh, have fun. Hello, everyone. Today, I have Adi Fuchs with me right here. He is the author of a series on Medium called AI Accelerators. And I have noticed in the last few years and certainly months that I have no clue about hardware. I, my conception of hardware is something that goes and if I want a neural network, I need like a GPU that goes and then there's TPUs and then there's IPUs and there's lots of stuff, but I never had any clue what any of it meant. So this article series was really valuable to me and uh, I thought maybe it's valuable to some of you too. So Adi, thank you very much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me and thanks for the, you know, the kind introduction. Uh, um, can you tell yeah. us a little bit about how, you know, what your background is in this space? Uh, why did you why did you decide to write a series like this and why did you think that um, you know, you you had the knowledge to do so? Well, so I've been back and forth between I would say industry and academia. I've been working for several hardware and software companies, you know, Philips, I also worked for Mellanox, I also worked for uh, Apple for some, you know, short period. And I've been back and forth. I did my masters back in Israel and then I did my PhD at the at the US at the Princeton University. And I I always you know my, my my studies have been mainly mainly focused on computer architecture you know more recently my experience has been with computer architectures processor architectures in general there's a lot of software going on into it but you know from the architectural perspective is how you can de design systems that are that can execute these applications very efficiently and there's a myriad way of, of actually doing so so um after my studies i started working for uh, one of the big companies um in the landscape and i said actually actually when i graduated i had when i graduated my phd i always had in my in the back of my mind that ai and machine learning and deep learning all that has been very very exciting you know i took just like one or two classes but i mm -hmm. didn't really have any extensive experience in it, but I do feel like I do, I, I was able to see that potential mm. and I wanted to say, okay, one of the natural things for me after I graduate would be to work for one of those companies that are developing hardware for AI. 
But, uh, you know, it, it, the story goes well beyond just hardware. You know, people right now understand that they need to develop smart systems, smart software. It needs to be a full stack view, just going beyond just like you said, the, the GPU that goes for the TPU or, or, or the underlying processor or whatnot. So the landscape seemed to be very exciting. Hmm. It's rapidly evolving. There are a lot of solutions out there. And I thought that, you know, as a hobby, what, what I did, I, it's just started as a hobby and you're just observing what people are doing, trying to look at the competitive landscape and try to see if there's anything that could be interesting for someone that wants to know more about that world, either be it a research scientist that wants to know a little bit of what's going on under the hood or people that are hardware engineers that wants to know a little bit more about, you know, the high level motivation for why people are doing AI mm -hmm. accelerators. So I was hoping that I will be able to create something like that, that will be able to contribute to several types of uh, people, I would say. Very cool. Uh, you, so my question is a little bit, why, what does it even mean to build hardware for something? Like, obviously, you know, we have computers and I can, you know, I can do pretty much anything with a with a computer. What does it mean to 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 say make hardware for AI? Uh, you have this term of user to hardware expressiveness. What does that mean? So I would say it's it's I would as I said there is it's more of my term in mm -hmm. lack of a of a better term. I would say that probably people have several either academic or industry more accurate ways to depict this is that the user knows on the high level what they're doing, what they want to do, what type of models they want to explore, mm -hmm. and how they translate it to high-level code, you know, like CAFE, PyTorch, TensorFlow, and all that. So the research scientist has the big model that they want to explore. But under the hood, there is what the hardware understand it, what it can ex execute. So if you look at it, you can see that there is a lot of layers that you need to go to that you need to lower from the high level code all the way to the, you know, to the bits that are basically executing on, 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 on you know, that the electrons that are flowing and it gets really, really complex because you need to have a full stack view and really know whatever crazy idea that the user is doing and whatever and and the last low-level detail of everything that your hardware basically can can execute, you know, it are degrees of parallelism, how it accesses the memory, be it DRAM, high bandwidth uh, memories, HBMs. There's a there's a lot of things that are going on. How your what are your precisions? Are you doing FP32? Are you doing FP16? BF16? Are you doing integers? What is your bit width? And, and there are a lot of details that someone needs to understand in order to build a full-fledged, fully capable compiler stack that you can basically write whatever you can think of and it'll out of the box be not only working because as you said, you can basically compute everything, right? The, mm -hmm. I don't know, church Turing thesis, a computer is a computer, but there is a difference between just solving the problem mathematically or accurately and actually doing it performant in, in a performant fashion because you can either solve a single problem 
and it will take a month to run or you can solve the same problem and it will be more efficient. It can take, I don't know, like a few hours or, or a few, even a few minutes. Mm. So that's that's the idea of user to hardware expressiveness. You know, the user yep. can think of whatever and the hardware can execute whatever and you need to bridge that semantic gap between them. And, and okay, let's say we agree that we need to, to build hardware uh, for AI. Uh, you go through a little bit of the history of that, I guess, starting with what everyone knows, which is kind of Moore's law, uh, that processors or number of transistors increased over time in a, an exponential fashion. But then you go into some into some less known laws like Dennert scaling, um, all of this leading up to saying, you know, we've reached the end of clock frequency. I think this is also known. Um, what's also known is probably that the we have replaced essentially speed with number of cores and we're going to parallelism now. You draw an excellent comparison to GPUs here, GPUs being the current uh, super many core architectures or not current but in the history they had more cores uh what makes gpus uh so attractive for ai in the first place yes so this i, I think this goes back a little bit to more of a, the intro you know mm. you're just saying hardware and you're saying computer but the fact that you can compute things at certain speeds have been key enablers I go in the introduction, I'm talking about AlexNet, right? Mm -hmm. You see in the AlexNet paper, they say in the abstract, we were able to develop a GPU implementation, an efficient GPU implementation that allows it, that allowed us to number, to crunch a lot of data and train a lot of data within a reasonable time frame and get a super fancy model that can run efficiently and, and within reasonable times. And that basically was a key enabler. Yep. What I didn't even mention is that, for uh, example, for natural language processing, the same story happened. If you look at the attention is all you need paper, they were able to say in the abstract, we were able to train it on GPU for three and a half days, which was order of magnitude faster than previous solution. You know, all those L LSTMs and RNNs that have this inherent sequential part that we were able to devise a new architecture that is able to run on hardware. And just by being able to harness the power of GPUs, we were able to run and it, it basically unlocked our capabilities. So mm. the ability of hardware has been, the role of hardware has been very significant and basically being the key enabler of, of, of AI capabilities. And that's why I think this series is more, is, is very important. Going back to our discussion, you know, trying to talk about frequency, it's good to know about the history because when you're talking about AI accelerators, is is essentially why do we need accelerators? Why why and why now? So, as you can see, as we said at the, at the beginning, there was there was frequency. We were able to get our, our our circuitry going faster. You can say that okay, we have we. Back at the 90s, you can have like this 486 going at 33 megahertz all the way to like 100 megahertz. Then it came the Pentiums and people will say, yeah, I have like, uh, I don't know, like 300 megahertz and then you go to like a gigahertz. And then it all ultimately going to the Pentium 4 with like three or four gigahertz. Back at the time, you know, during that time, people understood that 
because you're not able to do Denard scaling, you know, that the Nard scaling, what I mentioned there is the actual real problem, you know, going beyond Moore's law, the Nard scaling says that it's not only that you can have smaller transistors, they can also go faster and you can cram more transistors and you can have like, if you're, if your dimension scales by K, you can have K to the squared number of transistors. Each one will be K faster. And you're and the key enabler there was that you were able to, you know, to lower the voltage by that factor. The thing is, back at the night, back at the 2000, the voltage stopped scaling at the rate that you were able to uh, increase the frequency. So you can get faster circuitry, but your power density essentially increases. And that's where you can see that the graph that increases and then people say, okay, we cannot have faster transistors. So that mm -hmm. was the first stage in the evolution. Cannot have faster transistors. You can see like the green dot, the dot is basically plateauing yeah. and say, we cannot, we, so the implication is that we cannot have a single task going faster, but as Moore's law saying, we can still have more transistors. They just cannot go faster. So instead of having one task going fast, we're going to have multiple tasks going at the same speed. So instead yeah. of, you know, in, increasing the frequency twice, we'll have twice the number of cores. And depending on how we can map the problem, how efficiently we can map the problem, we'll be able to still get um, 2x by essentially parallelizing. And that was phase two, which is essentially the multi-core era. So you're able to cram more transistors. They'll be able to getting on the same uh, silicon wafer or, or the same silicon die. You'll be able to get um, twice as many cores. And as you can see here, the green line, especially for GPUs as, uh, as the main beneficiant, you're, get, you're saying, let's develop these instead of having this design, which is the CPU, which has all sorts of very sophisticated mechanisms like stuff that there are branch predictors, prefetchers, and all these speculative things that are saying we can execute an instruction, but this will take too long. We can do out of order execution, but doing all sorts of tricks to make a single stream of instruction go fast. Instead of it, let's do, let's redevise our software a little bit and break these the stream of instruction to several independent stream of instructions that are called threads and we're going to be able to run them hopefully in a perfectly parallel fashion on different what we call cores and each core will will execute its own stream of instructions so essentially we'll break up one task into multiple subtasks and by that we'll be able to still get the same degree of speed up you know if we'll be able to get it mm -hmm. To, to be able to get like 2x tasks, we'll be able to get a speed up of 2x. Obviously, there's a lot of difficulties, but that's 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 the main idea. So we'll be able to, so eventually, if we have enough parallelism, we'll be able to get to, you know, hundreds or even thousands of cores, and we'll be able to get hundreds of thousands of speed up, you know, compared to our regular task. But at the mid, I would say the beginning of the, 2000 around 2010 and 2011 there were two different works that highlighted the same phenomenon is meaning that you know because the north scaling again we're not able to scale the voltage just having transistors powered not even doing computation it doesn't matter even at what speed just having them powered on 
will increase our power density, meaning Moore's Law is still working. We can still shrink down the transistors. We can still cram more and more cores into the same silicon square, uh, square millimeter, you know, in the same silicon area, we'll be able to, to get more cores. But the power at that time will not remain constant. So the power also increases. So that will be unsustainable. And this has created the, the phenomenon that these works are talking about that is called either the utilization wall or dark silicon. Yeah, what's that, that? It means that, you know, you can have, let's say, a mil it doesn't matter that you're going to have a million core with microtransistors. It means that not all cores can be turned on at the same mm -hmm. time. Meaning for the purpose of your computation, you're going to remain in, under a fixed budget just due to power constraints. So basically what it means that you're not going to be able to get more transistors. And at this point... So the, the power yeah. constraints are mainly due to us not being able to cool down a like a thing that consumes more power. Yeah. Or what, what are the constraints there? So the constraints is that the, the power density, the power density, you know, the watt per millimeter square just starts mm -hmm. growing exponentially as you start yeah. exponentially cramming more transistors because the power per transistor stops scaling. It remains constant. So you'll have 1,000x transistors, you'll have 1,000x the power. And mm -hmm. that creates a problem. That will be unsustainable. And, and that will require cooling that either does not exist or is super expensive to manufacture. So, yeah. and that created a problem that essentially says that, okay, we're not going to be able to get more transistors. So if you're not going to be able to get more transistors, then came the notion of building accelerators, meaning that instead of having a single piece of silicon solving a wide range of problems, you're going to be focused on a little bit of a narrow scope of certain applications. And those yeah. applications needs to have some properties. So, um, and that's the idea. If we're not going to get, get more transistors, we're going to be able to create smart, uh, purpose-built circuitry with purpose-built compute and memory and communication that is basically targeting specific problems. Yeah, you can see an example like video encoders, Bitcoin miners, and yeah. AI. Yeah. So you can see there, if, if, if you look at, you know, more general purpose processors, if you can look at power efficiency or even performance, you can see that the general purpose processor is is fairly does fairly well for a wide application range, but those accelerators are you know for for example for FFT or 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 uh, you know graphs or 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 matrix multiply they're really good at a certain they're a certain task, but they do really poorly on on, on something else. For example. You cannot run your operating system or, or, or you cannot, it wouldn't be recommended for you to run your operating system on an yeah. AI accelerator. So, well, wait, 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 just wait. Like the, the community is going to figure it out. You just <laughs> need to scale, scale enough. But I guess I, I think from this point on, it's, it's sort of common, let's say common knowledge again that, you know, GPUs, uh, were purpose-built for graphics, but inherently that meant kind of matrix multiply things together. And then on the other hand, deep neural networks uh, just by happenstance 
by you know being convnets or or uh, feed forward networks also using a lot of matrix multiplies and i guess that was just you know how the universe works <laughs> these things came together and that was just a really neat fit and the point though is the gpus weren't made for ai in the first place even though it seems to be like a really good application for them uh how you know what's what's gpus are good for ai but what can be even better right like in which in which places are gpus still suboptimal for the ai things that we are doing well it really depends on on the, your applications demands and the application scopes for example mm -hmm. you can see like in the in the map that you're showing here you can see that gpus are really good at flexibility and they're really good in 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 having matrix multiply as you can say linear algebra is is something that gpus do pretty well and if you can map a lot of these problems, like a lot of cons and 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 uh, you know recommender models and all that, you can map them into a GPU and do dense and to do dense linear algebra pretty well. That mm -hmm. will give you a fairly good boost. But if you would could devise a certain you know if you would go all the way to the efficiency and doing something really really specialized you'll be able to say, let's develop an accelerator that just does ResNet, for example. That'll be really, really yeah. contrived to collapse to a certain a certain type of network. Theoretically, everything will be hardwired. Even the weights and everything will be perfectly, perfectly fit for that. But it would yeah. not be able to execute anything else. So if you, if you would be, yeah, yeah it, it'll be very, very bad in doing uh, other more general purpose AI. So that comes the question, you know, what, how can you trade flexibility for efficiency? For example, mm -hmm. one of the things that um, some of the companies are, 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 uh, that are not GPU based companies are tackling are these big, these large language models. For example, those GPT-3s and all that. And GPUs, yeah. if you look at the A100s, you can see that GPUs from the, from, from I would say that it was a conscious engineering decision for NVIDIA to go for high bandwidth models, uh, high bandwidth memories, I'm sorry, that are basically fast memories, but they're limited in capacity. Alternatively, mm -hmm. you can go for something else. You can go for a slower... DRAM-based memory. So HBMs are fast, but they're limited in capacity. And DRAMs are huge and have like terabytes versus, you know, dozens of gigabytes. And if your model requires terabytes of data, you would need hundreds or even thousands of GPUs just to be able to have the same, to do everything in memory, you know, to have the mm -hmm. same, to, to map the memory space of your model. And that would be something that, you know, I'm not saying that GPUs can do, but it would require a lot of GPUs turned on and a lot of power and a lot of communication going from, diff from different GPU systems to be able to uh, train a single, um, you know, like hundreds or hundreds of billions of parameter model. So, I mean, that's exactly what we see, right? Right. <laughs> okay. Um, so... 
yeah, I, I guess we can we can just uh, dive into what kind of you know hardware that goes beyond GPUs exist. That, that is to say, in part three, uh, okay, in part three of your series, you go into a little bit of the um, architectural, <clears throat> sorry, foundations, and you describe kind of what what exists, you know, what instruction sets are, uh, what kind of models exist, for example, reconfigurable processors. Uh, you, you, you make sort of a good, very extensive background overview, which we're going to skip right now, yeah. uh, just due to time. I just found this very, very funny. I guess that's why you posted it here. Yeah. So there is, a, this is a single instruction on, uh, that I can use on an Intel processor that computes approximations to the reciprocal square root with less than two to the negative 28 relative error of the packed double precision floating point values from these things and stores the result in that thing with right mass K1. Yeah. That is excellent. Like I, 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 need, I need that instruction every day. Yeah, so <laughs> but, yeah. You know, depending on the way that, that this is basically showing how you can devise when you look at a processor, you know the traditional uh, the traditional model of processor is called a von Neumann model. It's you're saying that you're you have a processor. Your processor accesses the memory. Your processor fetches an instruction from the memory. It decodes the instruction and says, "Oh yeah, we should do this and that." So this instruction accesses the memory and loads. Let's fetch the next instruction mm -hmm. and all and all that. So the the instructions are basically built from an ISA, which is the instruction set architecture, which you can think about it as the vocabulary in which the uh, the processor says the the processor mm -hmm. supports. Some processors support x86, some processors support ARM, and so which uh, which is I would say like the x86 is an example of what we call a complex instruction set uh, computing or CISC and ARM is the risk. So there was a trade-off between, you know, how much you're going to be able to, uh, to have a single instruction, you know, compact nicely, which will take less memory. So you're going to have a large vocabulary to express more complex computation versus uh, the risk, the reduced instruction set computer like ARM, that is going to be basically be translated to a lot of lot of micro instructions that are be that will be simpler. So that was an ongoing mm -hmm. discussion. But you know this, you know this gives a background of how basically a processor works. So yeah. there are a lot of concepts that I showed at the, at the part three that were basically used as the background for part four you know historically mm -hmm. i wrote part four as the combination of part three and part four but someone said but you know a lot of people just advised me that this is just going to be super long so i needed to break it down so yeah so if if anyone if anyone wants wants the background this article is is really nice on sort of the foundations of all of this if you if you want that and i think people can relate a little bit because in nlp you have this whole tokenization problem of you know how big do you make your vocabulary and if you make it too small you're gonna have to break down stuff into smaller pieces and so on um just i think it's it's approximately the the same concept right here you're trading essentially memory for for uh for speed mm -hmm. and and also the the thing is that you need a difficult you need a very smart compiler to look at your yeah. code and say, okay, these sequence of, if, for example, if you're writing in C, 
So these sequence of instructions are going to be translated all to that single instruction. And that way mm. you'll have a smart and very, very complex compiler that will be able to map your sequence of operation into that. Sometimes it works and sometimes you're just going to have like these ghost instructions that no one's really going to use. So, so here in part four, I think that that is, it is the longest part and you dive into the various uh, companies, startups that exist today building AI, uh, AI accelerators or AI hardware in any form. And it is, we have to say that you are associated with one of those companies. Yeah. We're not going to say which one though, obviously with the best one. Um, but, <laughs> but, uh, I felt, I felt reading the article that there was no, there was no, I, I didn't feel any favoritism. So I was, I was pretty happy to see that. Now we have a lot of them even discussed in your articles. Do you maybe have some that you want to you know, want to highlight in particular to just maybe show the diversity of the field and, and where it's going? Yes. So while there are a lot of solutions out there, I would say most of them stem from a handful of, of, of a few architectural ideas that were highlighted in, in, mm. in part three. So I would say that there is, originally there's the GPU with the CUDA yeah. that has dense linear algebra that is basically mm -hmm. has this uh, model, this execution model, single instruction, multiple thread. It's the idea of the, the classical von Neumann model. You have instructions, they're translated to, to processor level ISA that the instruction set architecture that NVIDIA and GPUs understand. And it's being parallelized mm -hmm. and, it, and you know, it has all these uh, you know, systolic-like execution. And a systolic array is, is an idea that dates back to the 1970s, where you're going to have a single piece of hardware that is really good in doing matrix multiply, because the data, when you're doing matrix multiply, the data from the A and the B matrix is basically flowing like that. And if you have a very smart mm -hmm. circuitry like that, which is, in a sense, a smart arc accelerator-like engine just for matrix multiply, it'll be able to carry out matrix multiply really efficiently. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so the GPUs have that and you can say that there are some other companies that I would say that are in the camp of VLI, a combination of what we call a VLIW, a very large instruction word, where you're going to have a heterogeneous um, array of compute machines, like a memory compute machine, a vector compute machine, a matrix multiply. And maybe, you know, some sort of a linear uh, compute machine for your reuse or, or, or tangents uh, operators and whatnot. And you have a static compiler that basically creates this huge instruction that says, okay, this data goes to the vector unit, this data goes to the matrix multiply, and this data goes to the uh, vector unit. And you're able to, s and you know the timing of all these units, and you'll be able to have a smart compiler that's statically. Um, creates this single word that is going to be fed to all mm -hmm. of them. So you can have a, uh, at compile time, a smart compiler that will be able to efficiently schedule these um, different data or operands to these machines and they yeah. will be able to get really efficient execution. So for, I would say the systolic slash VLIW camp, I would say things that are, I would Arguably, the most uh, famous example is the Google's TPU that was presented mm -hmm. at, I would say, 
mid 2017 at a a conference called uh, ISCA, the instruction, uh, the International Symposium of Computer Architecture, which is the biggest computer architecture uh, conference. So Mm -hmm. they uh, showed a model that is basically the TPU is based on a big systolic array execution with a linear unit and this smart memory and everything is being fed and they have a smart compiler that translates AI code for uh, that is able to execute DNNs, these um, deep neural nets. And that was the first time, arguably the most famous non-GPU AI accelerator that was uh, presented. So you Mm -hmm. can have, you have the Google uh, TPU. You also have a startup that is called Grok. Some of its found, uh, some of its founding members were part of the Google TPU team. There were architects at Google that um, took parts of that 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 took some of the ideas of Google's TPU and and created a more commercialized uh, accelerator for uh, deep neural nets. Um, mm-hmm. And also there is Habana. So I would say Google, uh, Grok, and Habana are. I would say the camp VLIW plus systolic array um, uh, accelerators. So the and yeah. so I understand this correctly. They, they essentially they have a a a chip or a a board, and that has many different let's say sub chips on it. One is really good at matrix multiplying. One is really good at doing ReLU. One is really good at whatever softmax. So kind of all these operations that we need in AI, they have like specially sub sub chips for, and then they have a very smart, essentially router that says, okay, you go here, you go here, you go here. So, you know, I could compute, let's say, I could compute the last layers ReLU at the same time, or the last batches ReLU at the same time that I compute this layers uh, forward through a linear layer. Is that... Am yeah, I this is essentially like you're correct? basically pipelining it. So if you have like yeah. one thing that needs the ReLU and then at, at, at one thing that needs the, you know, the matrix multiply for the kind of operation, then it needs the ReLU and then you can feed the next sample or whatnot that uses the matrix multiply yeah. while the, the, the <clears> other one also already doing ReLU. So you can do like sort of a yeah. pipeline execution. And by that, you're basically filling up your, your compute uh, machines, right? Your your your, comp- mm-hmm. and by that you're getting better utilization because you're using all of your hardware yeah. at a single point, and you're and everybody's happy, and your architecture is yeah. perfectly balanced because your compiler is smart enough to understand the program. Yeah. So essentially, we're we're saying we want the purpose-built hardware, like the the unit that just does ReLU, because that's way better than having a CPU do ReLU. Uh, but in order to have the flexibility, we have a bunch of them on a chip, and then we have a router and the compiler that knows how to use that router uh, and the pipeline. Yes. Okay, excellent. Um, so, but that it seems really it it seems like just from for me now, it seems a little bit still in the spirit of like a GPU of what you said that you you essentially have this von Neumann model, um, except here there's sort of pipelining added. There is distribution to different subunits added, right? But it's still um, these kind of instructions that are in sequence and the compiler needs to understand 
how to translate a program into that. And as I understand, the other companies here, they're trying to go sort of bit more out of like out of that paradigm is that yes. correct so i would say the the other big directions that companies are doing is the data flow directions so some companies mm -hmm. are combining two elements one is called reconfigurability and the other one is called data flow so um the mm -hmm. their reconfigurable data flow i think that tense torrent are doing it i think that uh, samba nova is doing it uh, originally, there was a company called Wave Computing that did it. Um, that are and and uh, there is another company. There was another company called Simple Machines that are doing it. So the idea of mm -hmm. reconfigurable data flow is that first of all, if you look at a um, PyTorch or TensorFlow or Keras or or a Cafe program and an AI a, a deep learning application, you can see that there are different layers. And they're communicating with each other. So you have a, uh, a known, a predetermined set of operands, and you know how the data is basically uh, being communicated between different parts of your graph. Mm -hmm. So in the underlying computation, the underlying computation is basically constructing of a computation graph. What does that mean? Like you can see over there, you have your layer, and from that you have another layer that does relu and then you feed it to another conf layer or weights and do that so you have basically something that is not instruction level but basically more of the way that your data you know you're, you can see that your data is basically flowing between different layers so the idea yeah. is that instead of having that data that program that data flow communication graph go you flatten it to the classic von Neumann model, then you try to reparalyze it. You can start off from this data flow model, from this data flow graph, and you can basically statically map it via another, again, you need a smart compiler to do that as well. You need to map it to your existing, to a, a specialized hardware that is capable of executing data flow, meaning you can have a compute element that does multiply in here and you can have another one that does add in here and you can have you can basically break down your dense linear algebra to compute unit and you can feed them to other compute unit instead of you know breaking down your computation to micro unit like saying oh here's an add then oh you need to multiply and all that so it would be more natural to look at the compute um to the, looking at the computation graph as a data flow graph and map it to the hardware and you can start it instead of you know going back and forth flattening it to the von neumann and then reparallelizing it to the von neumann so there you know mm -hmm. these companies bets are that this model is more natural it's more hardware friendly and ultimately you can have uh you can get a better gain because you're able to have a better, more complex understanding of the graph. You can look at different elements yeah. in your graph. You can have a smart compiler that fully understands your hardware. It knows the underlying, the number of compute elements and what each compute element in mm. your processor, in your accelerator is doing. And from that, it will create a mapping that will essentially go be very static and your data is just gonna flow instead of you needing to manually orchestrate it and breaking it down to instructions. So. 
you know, one of the main selling points of the existing landscape like GPUs is that GPUs are, they have a very mature software stack and they're very flexible. You can program everything from that von Neumann model. If you can create mm -hmm. uh, uh, a flexible enough architecture, you'll be able to basically handle new models because you know the main challenge for you to build a, uh, an accelerator company is that it takes two or three years to tape out a chip meaning you need to think about your idea yeah. you need to think about your architecture all of what you can execute and you need to be generic enough because within two or three years you're it's possible that your application has completely shifted away and if you look at those uh the if at the uh, mapping of specialized accelerators if you're here but your application space is moved here you're going to be you're not going to be able to execute it efficiently so you mm. need to be very open-minded and you need to be very mindful about being flexible enough to support this one of the main challenges for that is the ability to create um a smart enough software stack that will be able to execute it so it's not a trivial task so um, you can take the wave computing uh, case as an example. You know, wave computing was a company that was really revolutionary. They were able to they were able to present a commercial uh, commercialized accelerator that does reconfigurable data flow at the beginning of 2017. So they had you know a fancy hardware with 15,000 cores running at 6.7 gigahertz with and a lot of engineering complexity that is able to have both slow memory and fast memory and all that. But from what I understood that the CEO uh, interviewed and say, okay, we were not able to succeed in it because it was so complex that, you know, going from the basic cases where we were able to showcase a few kernels, trying to generalize that to more complex and real-world application, we found that that our, mm. you know, hardware software stack had to solve intractable problems, and that would become un uh, unreasonable. So I would yeah. say that their problem was that they were way, way ahead of the curve. You know, people were just exploring these problems, and they were not able to estimate those difficulties. You know, they were pioneers, mm -hmm. but ultimately, you know, it didn't pan out so great for them because eventually they, uh, you know, they file for bankruptcy. There, there's also this concept of um, in-memory compute or near-memory compute. Uh, what, does, yeah. what is that about? So there are several notions of how close the compute and your memory should be. Mm -hmm. So one form of near-memory compute is saying that you have you have your memory model and from that you're loading it to what we call a software control scratch bad memory. So you have small fast memories. You can think of it like as a processor cache, mm -hmm. but they're software control. Uh, you know, traditionally a processor cache like in the von Neumann model is basically trying as has a heuristic of, you know, saving the most recent accesses just because this is like the hot data. Yeah. And, uh, a software-defined scratchpad memory is something that is more compiler-controlled that you know 
how you're going to be able to access. You know, one of the things that you're um, that the one of the guiding principles of, of devising an accelerator is that you're basically able to anticipate how your memory and data accesses are going to be like. You're going to have a a basic a handful of basic computational structures that you're going to iterate over a lot of data and it's going to be really recurring that's one of the things that enable you to develop an accelerator in the first place mm. so a scratch pad memory is a very small a fairly small and fast memory you know it can be kilobytes to like uh, a megabyte uh, of data that is really close and it sits and it sits within the same piece of uh not even a piece of silicon, but within the same core within that piece of silicon. Mm -hmm. And you'll be able to communicate that, that that data fast. It will take like one or two clock cycles. Another approach would be a processor and memory approach. That when That's when the processing element sits really close to the actual memory model. If you're, if you're going to manufacture something like a DRAM or something that is called memristors, which are uh, memory-based resistors, you're going to be able to manufacture a memory module that is going to have um, logic elements inside of it. And you can see of those examples like Mythic or uh, one of those companies that are developing what we call the processor in memory is the idea that you can do, that you can look at, um, that you can look at deep learning computation, and you can look at the dot product. And from that, you can do analog computation, but that, and, and that will be fairly, fairly complex. But the idea is that you don't really need to fetch back and forth data from the memory because it's all within like the special circuitry that sits within your memory module. Mm -hmm. And you're saving a lot of that uh, energy going back and forth from uh, the memory chip and into a different chip, which is the uh, memory that the compute memory the compute uh processing element so it's it's like it's essentially like having a, a lot of like given that we already have a lot of cores that we also have like lots and lots of registers at those cores but the registers aren't just for you know temporary data but they are actually the memory yeah okay so it's in a sense you can think about it as you know, the difficulty is that you needed to really change the memory that you're manufacturing. That's something that not a lot of companies are doing, mm -hmm. but it's a promising direction because, yeah. you know, if, if you have something that is more, that is less depending on your transistors, so it's less prone to the failures of Moore's law. Yeah. So the, the, the end of Moore's law is, might not be the bottleneck for some of these modules, but there are other things like you can see that there's like an analog to digital converter, which could be power hungry. And mm. that creates a slew of analog uh, compute problems. So there are also a bit more, let's say, call them esoteric uh, things that you all, all of these were already esoteric to me. Um, but they are there are more more esoteric things like there's like optical computing and neuromorphic computing and things like this. What are you know, do you have any any favorites there or anything that you think is promising and not buzzwordy? Um, I think that these like I think that light matter is a company that is was founded by a few uh, MIT graduates 
and they have this idea that light that representing analog computation via light could be more efficient than using it basic but then expressing it through the digital domain mm-hmm. it's an interesting problem i i am not really versed on the uh, different types of difficulties there but you know it's sort of like thinking about an analog neuromorphic model where where the brain acts basically like on 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 analog pulses so mm-hmm. this is a little bit more trying to mimic the way that the brain works than you would go the traditional uh you know artificial neural networks where you're going to have a bf16 represent your weights and yeah. you can say that this is closer to reality and it's also more energy efficient but you know these are you can say that these are more advanced technologies so i would say that they're probably have their own set of challenges and uh you know you you never know which one of these technologies will prevail and be yeah you know the winner and what is what is neuromorphic computing i think that the neuromorphic computing as the way that we know it is is the form of analog computing you're going to have data over here you're going to have like the weights that are sitting within in your memory and your activation is going to be coming from that memory from as as inputs to that memory you're going to be able to do an analog addition and you and instead of doing that dot product between the weights you're going to have a single dot product doing vectorized compute in an analog fashion and you're going to be using analog circuitry to compute the results so it's more of a i would say it's more similar in theory to the spiking neural network uh model where you're going to have like your brain act on electric pulses mm-hmm. so that's what these circuit that's what these solutions are are trying to mimic yeah okay uh, conceptually um and you know sorry. that eventually if you look at hardware from from the, you know the grand scheme of things you know you have those accelerators these accelerators are good at doing ai but you know if 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 you're looking if you really want to get into the definitions you know you can go you can look at the in goodfellow's deep learning book it's not really ai there is the there is a venn diagram where ai and inside of it there is machine learning and then representation learning and then there's deep learning and from within that deep learning you can say that these accelerators are are good at you know a subset of deep learning and a subset of ml that is good at at doing matrix multiplication you know the, yeah. it, it they're really good at doing things like conv and transformers but is that a general solution to ai no one really knows you know you can say that the the interesting thing is that because the hard the hardware was a key enabler it's also sort of used as a limiter to what you can achieve you know yeah. people are saying is attention all you need is conv all you need could be but for what thing but one thing is for sure is that it's it it consists of most of what your hardware can do you know your hardware is really good at transformers and and attention and cons but you know if there is is that how intelligence really work maybe there's a huge uh slew of applications that can mimic more human intelligence 
that are not if that cannot be efficiently ran on on hardware accelerators mm-hmm. um the way that they're built today and we're not going to be able to explore it just because we don't have the hardware for it and we don't have a way to run it efficiently yeah I'm, so it's an interesting yeah. problem i mean there there is this this concept I've, people say this Right. This is this is a sentiment that's echoed throughout the community that, for example, graph neural networks, uh, we don't have good hardware for graph neural networks. And therefore, probably we're not going to explore them as much, which also means that hardware manufacturers, since, you know, we can't demonstrate that graph neural networks are really good, uh, won't build graph neural network chips. Do you do you see this? Do you see it generally going, let's say, more and more converging on some applications or do you think okay we'll discard some of the applications but also the ones we have will sort of morph and develop into different variants and so on like how do you see how do you see the hardware essentially the expensiveness of manufacturing hardware's effect on the diversity of the ideas in the field do you think there is hope to to increase diversity, even with the cost of hardware? It's an interesting question. I would say, obviously, money makes the world go round. If there's money within these applications, you're going to be able to build the, the, build the hardware for it. Mm-hmm. The thing is, like we said earlier, hardware has been a key enabler for what you can achieve. And basically, if you cannot run your application on hardware it will be able, it will be hard to create that ecosystem for that application to be able to justify building specialized hardware for it so it's a bit of a chicken and an egg problem yeah if i were to develop an an, an accelerator for a non-euclidean set of problems i would first need to look for the applications for it i will need to be looking for that justification for it simply because you know, I'm if if I'm a startup company, I'm going to have to need funding for it, right? Mm-hmm. But if you cannot have hard, if you don't have people that are exploring it, just because there's no hardware for it, you won't be able to find that justification. So it's yeah. a bit of a chicken and an egg problem. Mm-hmm. So as I said, you know, maybe attention is all you need. Maybe a conv is all you need. For surely, it's most of what we have right now, and it would be interesting to see. You know, I would say that. As I said in the final thoughts, I would think that in the next two or three years or so, the things are going to become clearer and, and, and architectures are going to be able to stabilize just because we understand the problem better. Yeah. You know, it takes us, it, it will take us like four or five years to really converge to a set of common practices and the way that we're de- developing hardware, the, well, the way de- we're developing software libraries and the way that we're developing compilers, we're going to be able to have like th- this, I would say like three or four stable software stacks that are really good at the conv and transformer games. Mm-hmm. Will there be other models to create other stacks? Sure. You know, but if I were to start a startup today, it will be really hard for me to go for, you know, the conv and, and, and the transformers just because, you know, this is saturated field and people are doing it fairly well. And you're basically almost maximizing what you can do in your hardware. Yeah. You have a, the last, the last saying here in your final thoughts is, um, 
everything old is new again. Do you want to explain what that's about? Yes. So there are a lot of, it seems like there's, there's a bit of, you can say that on one hand, these models have been, the, the most popular models, those key enablers, those AlexNet and those ResNets, those attentions and BERTs and the GPT-3s, they all originated in academic uh, papers, right? But mm. in the hardware field, things are, there's a little bit more of a disconnect. I would say that there are a lot of papers, there are, like, there are dozens of papers presenting new ideas every year in the top conferences are the ISCA, HPCA, ASPLOS, and Micro. And, but eventually you can see that all these fundamental, all these accelerators were basically using orig ideas originated like 30, 40 years ago. Processing in memories was, I would say in the 1980s, VLIW again, the 1980s, systolic arrays, the 1970s, data flow programming is the 1970s. Processing in memory also like 1970s. So it's a bit of conservatism because you know, as you as as you can say that a company building hardware knows, at least in the older days where it was hard to get money funding for it, you would need to really, really justify and really go for these well hashed out ideas before you would go for those wild card ideas. And 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 once you once you have that, might you might be able to explore more revolutionary ideas unfortunately i think that at this point a lot of your architectural foundations are already established so you won't be able to explore this crazy accelerators or those things that are you know really really out there you'll be able to somewhat integrate it into your existing architecture but it would be very daring to go and break your entire architecture completely. And, and especially in a very competitive landscape, you might not be able to go for that risk. You would be surprised, but there are many people in the AI community that say that all the AI ideas have been had in the 80s and 90s as well. And there's essentially nothing new under, under the sun. <laughs> But it's a debated position, let's it's say. It's a debated position. <laughs> well, you know, I, I would say that for one thing for sure, you know, that going back to the uh, attention is all you need and conf is all you need and essentially is what you got. You know, a lot of these, you know, the basic computational structures are already there. You know, people mm -hmm. are building on on, these, on the baseline of these architectures simply because, you know, one, you know for me as a, as a hardware architect from that my perspective, this is what the hardware can do. It, it even goes back to the, this academic notion of accelerators. There's a work called Stream Data Flow Acceleration uh, that was presented in ISCA of 2017 that they're saying, okay, the acceleratable domains need to, you know, they need to fulfill certain properties. They need to mm -hmm. have like a fairly confined um control flow they need to be like fairly repetitive you need to know how the data reuse you need to know a lot of how your computation patterns behave so you know if you're not going to be able to if you're not going to be able to build an accelerator that completely 
breaks out from this common wisdom and, 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 and breaks out this template, you might not be able to have an AI model that behaves that way. Mm. Is it, is it true or not? You know, could be, or could be not. Maybe, maybe we will find out that our existing patterns are fulfilling enough. I, I would say that there are a lot of problems within, even within the existing architectures that we were able to fully explore. Cool. Is there anything else you'd like to want to give people on the way? I guess there's not an easy way to necessarily get into, you know, hardware yourself at home or something. But um, if if people want to want to dive, they can certainly go to your articles, which I think are great. I will obviously link them uh, in the video description. Is there any any message you want to get out there regarding this? I would say, you know, I cannot really say anything about looking at the blog. Try to look at high-level overviews of, of how hardware and software behaves. Mm -hmm. It's really tightly coupled today. It's a really exciting time to be either in AI or in hardware because it's a really great opportunity from many aspects historically that you can explore AI hardware either as a research scientist, as a data scientist, or even a, a computer scientist. It's really good to see how, the, how all these pieces pan out. Mm. Start looking at the high-level overviews and then just deep dive into any of them. You know, open a computer architecture uh, book. You know, the old ideas are already there. Mm. Try to look at, you know, the high-level white papers from the big companies, you know, the Googles and the NVIDIAs you know, and the some of the accelerator companies try to understand how your software behaves. And you might find out that it's really great that you can execute your models much faster than you have anticipated, you know, because if you're, if it's going to take for you three days to train your model versus if it's going to take you three hours to train your model, that's mm -hmm. going to be a whole, it's going to be a key enabler to a lot of your capabilities. Yeah. So just try to do all those tweaks, try to understand the common practices, try to follow programming books and rules and best practices. And you might find out that you're going to be able to be a kick-ass data scientist. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Adi, it was a great pleasure having you here. This was I learned I learned a lot like really I had no clue before this so thank you very much for these articles and thanks for being here. Thanks a lot for having me.